As I mentioned a bit earlier, the subject of the sermon or the focus of the sermon has changed since I first put the bulletin together a little bit earlier in the week. Um, Revelation chapter 21, verse 9 to the end of the chapter kind of focuses on that bride, the faithful bride, in contrast to the faithless bride of chapters 17 through 20. And we'll be looking at that more in the Bible study this evening. But for this morning, we're going to look primarily at the early verses of Revelation chapter 22. And in order to do that, we need a little bit of background from both the Old Testament and from the Gospels. In his book, The Temple, its ministry and services as they were at the time of Jesus Christ, the 19th century pastor and author Alfred Edersham wrote, the most joyous of all festive seasons in Israel was that of the Feast of Tabernacles. And we know it as the Feast of booths. Um, it fell at a time of year when the hearts of the people would naturally be full of thankfulness, gladness, and expectancy. All the crops had long been stored, and now all fruits were also gathered. The vintage passed, and the land only awaited the softening and refreshment of the latter rain to prepare it for a new crop. Edersham goes on, the harvest thanksgiving of the Feast of Tabernacles, and this fell in October-ish. Hebrew calendar was a little bit different, but it roughly corresponds to the time of the year when we observe Thanksgiving even to this day. The harvest thanksgiving of the Feast of Tabernacles reminded Israel, on the one hand, of their dwelling in booths in the wilderness, while on the other hand, and this is important, it's the understanding of the prophets and the understanding of even the rabbis who wrote of it in the Talmud and other places. It pointed to the final harvest when Israel's mission should be completed and all nations gathered unto the Lord. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was regarded as kind of the crowning event of the year. And in chapter 14, verse 16 of the book of the prophet Zechariah, it is even characterized as the crowning event of all of covenant history. Zechariah wrote, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. As the third and final feast that required the presence of every man in Israel, this feast was very specifically designed in such a way as to have a lasting impact on the many foreign pilgrims, some of whom would only come once in their lifetime. It lasted seven full days, during which time all the people, even the ones who lived locally, would go out of their homes and camp out in booths that were constructed from the boughs of trees. And these trees had to be cut that year. They had to be living trees that still had leaves on them that were then woven together into a kind of a booth where the people could stay out of doors. According to Edersham, votive free will and peace offerings would mark their gratitude to God. And at the meal which ensued, the poor, the stranger, the Levite, and the homeless would be welcome guests for the Lord's sake. Because everybody had moved into these booths. Apparently, Jerusalem was transformed. The rooftops and the streets and the courtyards filled with these leafy boughs under which people were sleeping. And each day while the morning sacrifice was being prepared, so there's the daily sacrifice and then there are the special sacrifices of the Feast of Tabernacles. Each day 
While the morning sacrifice was being prepared, the pilgrims would divide into three groups. The first group would remain there in the temple as the sacrifice was being slaughtered and laid on the fire of the altar of the great altar before the Lord. Then a second band, another third of the pilgrims, would go in a festal procession to a place called Matzah outside the city where they would cut down willow branches and they would bring them back into the temple and eventually they would take those live willow branches and form a canopy or a booth over the altar itself. I don't know what you have in your imagination from some of the illustrations that you've seen, but sometimes you have this image of the altar as maybe, maybe a little bigger than the communion table here in our church. In reality, it was circular, and it was over 30 feet across. And multiple priests were functioning all around that altar throughout these times of sacrifice, especially on the feast days. At the Feast of Tabernacles, the gates of the temple were opened right at midnight as, as the day sort of formally began so that pilgrims could come in and sacrifices could be inspected and prepared to be offered. So sometimes we think of the temple and we think of shining marble and gold and this beautiful sort of um, cathedral-like building. Think of that but converting that into something of a slaughterhouse as well, the volume of animals, and especially the volume of blood that passed through the temple and was poured out there on the altar, left need for a means to carry all of that away, away from the temple, away from the city, and even away from the environs around the city when you think of the fact that Solomon sacrificed something like 22,000 bulls at the consecration of the temple. Imagine the blood, the fat, the offal that would be produced by that volume of sacrifice. And that was not that uncommon in the history of the temple. So when they brought back these boughs, I have digressed, that they were going to make a canopy over the altar. These had to be like long branches, poles, whole young trees with leaves still on them that could be raised above the altar to form a booth over the altar. And then there was a third company. And that third company was led by a band of musicians and singers, and they would follow a priest to the pool of Siloam. And there, having filled a golden pitcher with living water, the Pool of Siloam was supplied from a spring that filled the pool constantly and the pool overflowed. So it was regarded as living water for the purpose of sacrifice. So they would fill this pitcher with living wash water and then they would return to the temple. And this was all very carefully orchestrated and timed so that that third band would arrive back in the court of the temple at the very moment when the final pieces of the final sacrifice were being laid on that great altar. In the court of the priests, the one who was bearing the water in the golden pitcher would be joined by another priest who was carrying the wine for the drink offering. And they would ascend the sides of the altar, and on one corner, you talk about the horns of the altar, well, on one corner, on one of the horns, there were two silver funnels that led into a little channel that drained at the base of the altar. And at exactly a precise 
moment, the two priests would pour the water and wine into those funnels so that they would merge and out from the base of the altar would run this stream of living water carrying blood from, or carrying wine um, the off from the drink offering. And as the water and the wine mixed and flowed out from beneath the altar, then the Levites would lead the pilgrims in chanting or singing the great Hallel, which is Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, inclusively. And they would do that in a way the priests or the Levites would say out a verse, and then the people would respond. And then they'd say another verse from the priests, and then the people would respond. There was this back and forth worship of God that was carried on exuberantly while the water and the wine flowed from the base of the altar. Now, one of the other things that happened every day for six days, and this will sound maybe a little bit familiar, but every day for six days as the people worshipped, the priests would walk in a procession all the way around the circumference of that great altar just once each day for six days. Let that ring a bell somewhere in your Sunday school and VBS history. Because on the last day, that great day of the feast, as John designates it in John chapter 7, when the water was poured out at the base of the altar and the people sang that great hallelujah, the priests would process seven times Sounding more and more familiar from those Old Testament days? They would process seven times around the altar, as the people of Israel did at the siege of Jericho. And when they had finished that seventh circumlocution of the altar, they would take those branches, not only the ones that had been raised by the pilgrims as a canopy over the altar itself, but every pilgrim in the courtyard had brought a branch of his own. And they would take those branches and they would literally beat them on the ground until all of the leaves had fallen from the living branches and trees that they had brought into the temple, just littering the courtyard of the temple with the leaves of those living trees that they had brought in. And this symbolized to them the fall of Jericho seven times around and the booth comes down and the leaves are scattered. But in symbolizing the fall of Jericho, it also symbolized to the people of Israel the day when all of the pagan, heathen, Gentile nations would bow to the Lord God, the Almighty. It symbolized the ingathering. That's what this feast was sometimes known as by the rabbis, the feast of ingathering. And it symbolized not just the ingathering of crops, but the ingathering of the nations to come and to be the people of God. Now John used that phrase on the last day of the feast, the great day, to tell us that it was at just that time when the water and wine have been poured out and the people have probably just finished singing that great hallelujah and the leaves have been dropped on the floor, on the the courtyard of the temple, that Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. More about that later, so just hold that thought. But continue to think about the imagery here. 
the water and the wine that was poured out at the base of the altar to say nothing of the blood of the sacrifice had to go somewhere. It ran from the altar through an ingenious series of channels out of the temple and indeed out of the city itself and into the brook Kidron. You've, you've heard of that brook before. It's often associated with sorrow and death. It's the brook that Jesus had to cross over on the east side of Jerusalem when he went to the Mount of Olives on that final trip where he would pray, Father, not my will but yours be done. Well, all of the blood and the water and the wine, the leaves that were swept up and flushed away in the water, all of that had to run into the brook Kidron, which flowed to the Dead Sea. And it's in that context we need to hear the words of Ezekiel chapter 47. So we're looking again at the Feast of Tabernacles within an Old Covenant context. But in Ezekiel 47, in the measurement of a spiritual temple, Ezekiel is ushered around by an angel. He's given a staff. He's told to measure. In 47 verse 1, Then he brought me to the back door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. So understand the sort of progressive growth of this stream of living water that Ezekiel was measuring. It was a trickle as it ran out from the temple. By a thousand cubits later, it has become, that's about 500 meters, by the way, about a thousand cubits later, it has become a stream that reaches to his ankles. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee-deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was waist-deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. So we have this stream of living water flowing out of the temple in Ezekiel's vision. And as it flows, it becomes wider and it becomes deeper until it is a river that no one can cross. Um, obviously, it's not a literal thing. And it flows toward the east. It flows towards the Dead Sea, that region of salt marshes and water that's just so salty it's, it's useless for anything except for making salt. But in Ezekiel's vision, as this living water flows from the temple, when it reaches those salt regions, it makes the water there fresh and it brings life wherever it goes. 
And not only that, Ezekiel tells us in verse 12, on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And this is precisely the old covenant background of our text this morning from Revelation chapter 22, where verse 1 reads, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And of course, in this new covenant context, we understand what was made plain in chapter 21, verse 22, where John wrote, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So where Ezekiel, in his context, sees this stream flowing from the temple, John doesn't see it flowing from the temple per se. He sees it flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, because God is the temple in this new covenant city. And so they see it a little bit different. And while Ezekiel describes this water's flow in terms of a trickle that grows into a river that no one can cross, John sees it flowing through the middle of the street of the city. In other words, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, but flowing through the church. Now this may not be immediately obvious, but we addressed this some already last week, and again in the Bible study, we'll be dealing with it in more detail this evening. But frankly, we know the identity of the city as referenced here in chapters 21 and 22 from the very words of the text. In chapter 21, verse 9, one of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to John and said, come I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of Christ. And the bride of Christ is the church, always. And Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 speaks to the, just this thing, saying, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And by the way, if you have ever wondered what splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing would look like, Come to the Bible study tonight because it looks like the description of a bride adorned for her husband found in Revelation 21 verses 9 through 27. Because this is one of those I heard and I saw moments. We've noted a few of these as we went along through the book of Revelation. The first was where John heard an angel say, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed so as to break the seals and open the scroll. And then he turned and he saw a lamb standing as if slain. I heard and I saw as an interpretive device in the book of Revelation. So that the two things are the same, even if the description doesn't sound exactly like the thing that John sees in the very next phrase. So here, John hears 
an angel comes and says to him, come, I will show you the bride. And then he sees the angel carried him away in the spirit and showed him the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So the bride of which the angel spoke is the holy city, Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God. And if the church is the bride and the bride is the city, then the city, by simple logic, is the church. If A equals B and B equals C, then C equals A. The church is the bride, and the bride is the city. So the city, here in Revelation 21 and 22, contrary to the way we may have thought of it in the past, is definitively the church. And the water flows from the throne, but through the church. What, what is that water? Ezekiel told us that when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. So this living water will actually make the water of the dead sea fresh. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for fruit, food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. But John gives us a little more information on what this healing actually involved. John says essentially the same thing, writing also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, incidentally, this is how we know that this description applies to the church age, to this age, and not to the eternal state. It's not a vision of the world after the return of Christ when we all enter into glory because there are still nations and because those nations still need healing. And it isn't coincidental that at an ancient feast looking ahead to the ingathering of the nations, the people of God raised a canopy of leaves above the smoke of the great altar and then shook those leaves from their branches to be washed eventually into the brook Kidron and down to the eastern sea, symbolizing the time described by John in verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, that is, in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. This is a theme that we've seen all through the book of Revelation. God seals his servants on their foreheads in contrast to the mark of the beast which is put onto the forehead of those who worshipped the beast and the dragon. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. No more on that this evening. But for this morning, how is this fulfilled in the present age? Well, we come back to the Gospel of John, chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So hear the word of the Lord. If anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus and drink. 
And the Lord went on, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But that was then. That was in that time when Jesus was speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles before his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. This is now. And throughout the book of Revelation, we have seen exactly that. We have seen the glorification of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's exactly the message that was summarized for us in chapter 11. Then there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Jesus Christ has been glorified at the right hand of God the Father. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he does reign and shall reign forever and ever. He has been glorified and the Spirit has now been given. So Jesus' invitation in John 7, 37 is more relevant than ever. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, Jesus said, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We should hold this invitation alongside Revelation 22, verse 17, which we will focus on more next week. But there we read, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Not come, Lord Jesus, just nations, come. And the one who, let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price because this is how the water of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. It flows from the throne of God which is the temple in the church and it flows through the church and out into the world. When we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, when we trust in him, when we drink of the water of life without price, bowing to Jesus as Lord and Savior, then his promise made long ago to a woman at a well in Samaria is fulfilled in us. He said to her, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A spring of water welling up. A spring that has to go somewhere. Like that water and wine that was poured out at the base of the altar on the Feast of Tabernacles. It didn't just sit there in a pool. That was never the point. It had to go somewhere. And went out to the east, through the Brook Kidron, and down to the Dead Sea where it brought life. And as the spring that is the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people overflows as this river of living water flows out of our heart. It comes from God, but it flows through us and it brings life. 
and the leaves of the tree, the tree of life that grows on the banks of the river, are for the healing of the nations. The mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and to do so in such a way that we invite people of all nations to come and drink freely of the water of life provided for us in the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, in the atoning sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ. So let me close this morning with words from Presbyterian theologian G.K. Beale. Since the river of life flows from God's presence into the lands of the nations, so our mission to the nations must flow from the life found in God's presence. When the source of our commitment to mission is located only in the backwaters of our idealism, then we can burn out and become bitter. Many idealistically plunge headlong into a sacrificial commitment to the poor or the unreached or the hurting, compelled by brokenness over their plight. But the resources of idealism run dry when tested by the challenges of costly obedience. However, when our resources run dry, we drink more fully and deeply from the abundance of life found in God's presence. Our God gives joy and strength to endure. The life that we find in God's presence is more than enough to overcome every challenge for the mission that God has placed before us. However, life must clearly flow from God's presence into the needs of the nations. And the needs of the nations, we might say the needs of our neighbors, must drive us to drink more fully from the life found in God's presence. See, this drinking from this river of the water of life is, you know, we think of it as a one-time thing. Well, I drank from the water of life, now I'm saved. It's not meant to be that. It's meant to be that this river of the water of life is continuously flowing into us and then flowing out from us for the healing of the people of this world. Even so, hear the word of the Lord. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as you have spoken to us by your word and spirit, give us hearts to understand what we have heard. And Lord, by your grace, give us the will to put into practice that we have heard, that we as your people may be moved to drink deeply of the river of the water of life flowing from your throne and that of the Lamb. And that, Father, that river would overflow from within us as your Spirit works in us and through us to accomplish your purpose. And as we go out into the world to say to those who are thirsty, come and drink freely of this river of the water of life. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Work in us all that is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever 
and ever. Amen.